Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Character counts. One of my New Testament forebears stood in this very chapel and he was introducing a sermon series on the letter to Ephesians this way from Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. So, says my friend, when I drag myself out of bed and stare at my haggard face in the mirror, sure, that's what crosses my mind, holy and blameless. How are you doing at that this morning? How am I doing at that this morning? Holy and blameless. And yet that phrase is something of what Scott introduced us to last week when we looked at the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And we read there some of the characteristics of a role model church, what it looks like to be in Christ, to have other believers in other churches recognising God's work in us. Character counts when you're a Christian believer. And this week as we move into chapter 2, Paul and Silas and Timothy ramp up the stakes even further. It's not just church members for whom character counts. It's obviously just as important for church leaders. Consistent character counts. I used to hate high school debating. I had enough trouble trying to work out what my own team was trying to say, let alone trying to understand the arguments of the opposition. And I have to confess that when I look at a mixed chapter like the one before us today, sometimes the words start to blur together. I get the general gist of what it's trying to say, but is there some kind of overall point to this chapter? And the answer is yes. When you study the passage carefully enough, the chapter revolves around and is summarised in the central verses. So in verse 10, the apostles declare, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. And the purpose of their ministry is summarised there in verse 12, urging you to live lives worthy of God who called you into his kingdom and glory. If every believer is holy and blameless, here we see the matching example of church leaders who are holy and righteous and blameless. Character still counts. I suspect everybody's finally learning how to read the yearly planner. We finally start to realise, oh, it's week 10. And all of a sudden, a number of changes are taking place as we move towards final assessment and so on. Even if this is your first semester at Ridley, we hope you're already catching on to the idea of Ridley's values and emphases. Sure, we want you to think good, defensible, academic thoughts but we hope you're also catching on to the ideas that we also want you to live lives worthy of God. You might know lots of intellectual answers, but is the partnership between God and Ridley and ourselves also continuing to produce good character? You might be here this morning as part of Brian's class. Have you mastered enough of Logos yet to find all the occurrences of the word love? and spit that out in an essay or an exam? And how are you faring at growing in showing love? 
for those in your class and those throughout your everyday week life. Now, we would hope that the importance of good character is an essential given, that I don't need to spend much more time selling that element to you. But I wonder how often we contemplate why such character is important. The chapter before us today gives us some direct and some indirect answers. Think about media for a moment, whether you're thinking about the mainstream media or diversified social media, whatever we might read or might follow, we're all familiar with the idea of a feeding frenzy, the kind of thing that media just loves to thrive on. And consumers, media consumers, love a good downfall. In recent months, we've seen not only more falls of famous church leaders, but also fresh rounds of allegations against secular politicians. And don't misjudge the media. I don't think they've got anything particularly against adultery or greed, but what the media most loves is catching out people's inconsistencies. How dare this politician espouse and vote along the lines of family values when he's slipping his way around his office staff? How dare that public servant lecture us about frugal finances when we can see how they're rotting their expense account? And this question of consistency or inconsistency seems to be what's at stake among the Thessalonians. It's one thing to say that individual Christian believers are holy and blameless in God's eyes. But here in chapter 2, we're talking about Christian leaders and Christian leaders being not only holy, righteous and blameless in God's eyes, but even holy, righteous and blameless in society's eyes. We can hear here in this chapter that potential doubts among this young church are being assuaged. We hear mention here and elsewhere of various opponents and it's likely that they're accusing Paul and Silas and Timothy of being like other itinerant speakers. Those other itinerant speakers in the first century were unashamedly interested in human praise and financial gain. We read elsewhere that in Corinth, Paul is accused of being underpolished in his presentation, not being up to par with these kinds of slick salesmen. But here in Thessalonians, the accusation seems to be that his team is being too slick, too polished. What's in it for them? And that starts to make sense of all the comparisons that pervade the opening verses of today's chapter. If you like making spreadsheets, you'll be able to fill two columns quite evenly here, not just because you're a tech nerd, but because you might like to have good ways to lead youth in their Bible studies. Make two columns and watch what Paul says his team is and isn't like. The apostles turn and say, you Thessalonians know all of this. Start filling out the spreadsheet. Our visit wasn't without results, but we dared to tell you God's gospel, despite opposition. Our appeal wasn't from error or impure motives or trickery, but it comes from speakers approved by God. We're not trying to please people, but to please God, who knows our motives. We never use flattery or disguise. Again, we were not looking for praise from people, but no, we didn't assert apostolic authority. Rather, we were like young children among you. And not only here's a great way to help lead youth Bible studies, but here's an awesome checklist against which we might vet our own better or worse characters and values. It's a nicely balanced list showing us what we might be like. 
and what we ought not be like. So if you fancy yourself a church leader, and in the context of this chapter, particularly as a church planter, Paul and Silas and Timothy are offering some really clear guidelines of what you might aspire to. And it's challenging. It's easy to read the words. It's harder to digest them. Even theological teachers can look at this list and raise an eyebrow. How much might I be motivated by the praise of people? I finally found an environment where I can tell dad jokes and enough people laugh. Thank you. Do I have any other impure motives at work? Fortunately for us, the mention of being like young children in verse 7 then sparks an increasingly positive list in the following verses that we might all continue to grow towards. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. What did this caring look like? We shared with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives. We didn't demand that you pay us. Rather, we apostles actually took on labouring jobs to pay our own way. And we see then those actual behavioural character values at work. We were holy and righteous and blameless among you. We were like a father with his children, encouraging, comforting, urging, so that you would live lives worthy of God. It's rather clear and rather challenging. We might rightly turn to letters like this one to get a sense of good doctrine. And we often pick out our favourite examples among Acts and the letters of the kinds of ministries that we like the look of. So we might turn to Paul, not least in Romans, if we want justification for preaching with detail or drama or dogma. You don't have to look at very many of the missions journals to find them turning to the book of Acts to investigate some of Paul's church planting strategies. We notice how he often focuses on major urban hubs where the gospel might take root and then spread outwards into the surrounding regions. But some of the ministry imagery here in 1 Thessalonians 2 is more challenging and it may not be the kind of thing that we turn to first. Look at the climax of the opening paragraph in verse 7. We weren't flattering or greedy or throwing our authority around. Instead, we were like young children among you. And this isn't always the image of the senior pastor or the church planter that gets as much publicity. Verse 9 talks about what today we might call the bivocational pastor. It's already true in very many parts of our world, and I suspect it will increasingly become the case in the Western world for some of us in our generation, that pastors might spend some of their time in their church, but also spending much of their time earning a secular income. Here and elsewhere in Paul's writings, we read of the kind of model that refuses to let a church pay its leaders. And then the consequences of that messes with a number of our other modern mantras about suitable work-life balance, and the absolute necessity of self-care even at the expense of ministry. Now, please hear those remain important issues for us to chew over. But it seems that at least here in Thessalonica, our missionary friends are working six-hour workdays, eight-hour workdays, ten-hour workdays, as well as carving out time to share their lives and to live among and to teach the Thessalonians. 
it might strike you as something of a shock to what's becoming an increasingly ingrained, and I wonder if it's an increasingly comfortable modern ministry convention. It suggests that Ridley faculty might actually spend some of their evenings stacking shelves at Coles so that we might have student fees. And I sometimes wonder if saying things like that jeopardises my job here. <laughs> Perhaps it just gives me the opportunity to take up an extra job at Coles. <laughs> but it brings us to keep asking these important questions of the passage. That was then. What might still be relevant for now? And also the question, why did the apostles write all this to the Thessalonians? As much as we in our generation might read and learn from the apostles' ministry examples, I'm pretty sure they're not writing it down in the first instance to teach the Thessalonians some ministry skills. This isn't a document like the letters to Timothy and Titus, mapping out overt instructions for apostolic ministry. There is probably a small degree of imitation that our authors are hoping for. We read in other chapters that some of the congregation have started to become a little bit lazy in their approach to the workforce. But this isn't a chapter written to aspiring church planters. But we keep coming back to our foundational observation. Character counts. Consistent character counts. And our apostles are boasting about their ministry workload in order to reinforce their ministry message. If there were rumours swirling around about their potentially dodgy ministry practices, then those rumours threatened to undo their ministry message. It's that same phenomenon we've talked about in today's media. Why should we believe this politician if behind the scenes he's really behaving like that? Even in secular society, consistent character counts. And so our apostles aren't just boasting about their ministry workload in order to show off. It's not some really ironic boasting about humility. They're not talking up themselves as much as they're talking up their message. They repeatedly appeal to the Thessalonians' own experience of their character and their integrity. And they also repeatedly dare to invoke God's witness of their lifestyle. Their whole lives are laid bare for the Thessalonians to see and invited to judge. Then having exposed themselves and their motives, they can give the Thessalonians great confidence that the gospel message that the apostles have preached is just as complete and whole, holy and righteous and blameless as their character I wonder how you're faring with this angle on this chapter. I'm pleased that I don't need to sound too sceptical here. I don't need to go down the glass half empty route because I'm delighted that even around college, the college community often gets to see how transparent many of you are. We see who you are. We witness how you speak and act. We know something of what makes you tick. And the result is that we can grow in our confidence in your words and your lives because you've shared them with us and we can grow in confidence in the words and lives of what you do beyond campus. It was one of the great blessings of having classes by Zoom last year and even a couple of days in February this year. More of us got to catch a glimpse of each other in each other's houses. Who are you when you're at home, not just when you're at college? 
I've heard school teachers delighting in the great insights that you get from this bonus transparency. It's delightful when teachers hear of students sharing time with each other outside of class and on campus, but outside of campus and through the rest of the week. And of course, such a passage is also a reminder that teachers need to be proactive and hospitable in sharing our lives with students as well. And of course, not just in what we find in our shared ministry responsibilities at Ridley, but what do we hear about or know about or hope about in wider ministry settings? And it's with this kind of consistent character established that our authors make their primary application to their congregation. In verse 13, we also thank God continually when you re- because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Our apostles are saying, you've seen what we're like. You know that our message isn't just some smooth salesmanship. Rather, you know how authentic we've been in our lives, so you know how authentic our message is. And we ourselves can be confident at this point in our chapter that we're on the right track because it's actually much the same as we've heard last week, the same idea brought out in chapter 1. Be encouraged, you Thessalonians. God is clearly at work in you. You've seen the gospel message arrive. Don't doubt it. It's arrived not just with with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. You've become a role model church. Even other churches have started to notice you. You've got it right. So if the Thessalonians might be starting to harbour any doubts about their conversions or about their convictions, then here is more of the evidence they need for hanging in there, for doing what's already going well. And such a message keeps piling on as we make our way back from chapter 1 and back into chapter 2. Chapter 1 is full of praise for God's effective work in this congregation. We might have missed it at the start of chapter 2. It makes the same point. For you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. And again, the Thessalonians have witnessed God at work through the apostles. We get that catalogue of the apostles' authenticity, their lives open and exposed before this congregation that they love. And now again in verse 13, that encouragement is reinforced. We thank God because you received the effective message of the word of God. And we can catch glimpses here and elsewhere that such encouragement is needed. The next few verses, we've asked Zoe to keep reading through chapter 2, even though most of the point is made towards the end of verses 10, 11, 12, bit of 13, because we catch glimpses of the pressures facing the Thessalonians. Just as in Judea there had been some opposition, uh, some Jews growing hostile to the gospel message, we catch wind of some opposition rising around Thessalonica as well. Again, our missionaries, even in reporting this opposition, are praising and strengthening their church. When they write, for you brothers and sisters became imitators of such churches, of God's churches in Judea. You too are holding up in the face of local hostility. And though we won't go into it in our short chapel series, we find the last paragraph of chapter 2 and right through chapter 3 is further reinforcing this matter. The apostles have been worried about their congregation. They've foreseen the rise of anti-Christian sentiment. They've even experienced some of it for themselves when they are opposed and summarily banished from Thessalonica. 
when you read through the various encounters in Acts, being banished from Thessalonica is one of the few events with no optimistic glimpse as the farewell takes place, as they're cast out, as, as they say in verse 17, as they're orphaned. And so the apostles have been sending Timothy and now they're writing this letter in order to assure and encourage their Thessalonian friends to persist in the face of such opposition. We've raised some daunting questions about ministry. And again, I'm conscious that not all ministry is going to follow exactly what we find here in the first century, not exactly what we find in Macedonia, not exactly what we find from Paul or Silas or Timothy. But if we claim to adapt anything from apostolic ministry, if we want some of the kudos that comes from being their heirs in any way, then we've got to confront some of these tricky questions as well. Some of these pointers, at least, that God invites us to consider. How do we fare with ministry transparency? I suspect many of our ministry friends in this passage would raise an eyebrow at some forms of ministry compartmentalization. I appreciate that we sometimes want to be careful about how the rest of our families suffer from our ministry pressures. And it's true that our colleagues here weren't married. They didn't have spouses or children, so we don't get any direct teaching on how much it might be appropriate to shield family from ministry pressures. But I wonder if the trajectory here in the passage at least leans towards favouring a more transparent ministry lifestyle. I suspect Paul and Silas and Timothy might frown at some tendencies to try and keep ministry and family too far apart in too much the idea of separate silos. We do see here the kinds of encouragement that lean towards abundant transparency. And yes, this is daunting whether it's concerning family, whether it's just simply concerning me. How much of my broken and imperfect life do I want those in my ministry care to see? How many personal secrets am I allowed to keep to myself and and not let on about? And again, I think the answer is, at least if we want to follow something of this chapter's insights, we ought not to have too many of those secret, personal, hidden things. If we want people to trust our message, to trust our gospel message, if we want them to be convinced that we're bringing them the whole truth and nothing but the truth, then we want to guard against any kinds of behaviours, including secretive behaviours, that might give them any reason to doubt our authenticity. Yep, this raises a whole bunch more questions about professional conduct. It raises more of those questions about work-life balance. But again, the starting point here would appear to err towards more towards openness than hiddenness. Character counts, consistent character counts. And if you've got character flaws that threaten your ministry, the solution isn't to hide them, but to correct those flaws so that you then have the freedom to live more openly for the gospel. And of course, some of us here won't have ministries quite like the Thessalonian planters we read about. But again, I still think we find here some evidence for the value of open, transparent living and the development of consistent characters. And we ourselves might be in the very much the position of the Thessalonian readers. We might find ourselves beset by different kinds of opposition. We might find ourselves tempted to abandon. That's a strong word. We don't abandon the gospel, but we might just step back a little from the gospel. And we find here fresh reminders for us to review those good sources, those upright characters 
who've taught to us the news of Jesus? Who are those people, past and present, whose characters have reinforced their words? For whom should you give thanks for their ministry, even as they thank God for his work in you? Whether in our roles as leaders or our roles as followers, please hear again these central words from chapter 2. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. Amen.